Hello, everybody, and welcome to What Would the Smart Party Do? I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Baz. Hello, Baz. Hello. Everything good down there with you? Yeah, everything's awesome. It's a bit chilly. It's a cold January night. It's very dark outside. I hope you've got nothing scary to talk about tonight, guys. I'm on my own in the house. Oh, well, we'll see about that. One of the things we wanted to talk about, which has been mentioned by one of our avid listeners, is urban fantasy. So I had a bit of a think about that. We probably need to talk a little bit around what that might mean. Then perhaps moving to the sort of games that that perhaps encompasses. Uh, and I've got a special game I want to hark back to from yesterday that I think we both played decades ago, maybe. But they should probably get dragged out of the cupboard and taken from the dusting, given the current enthusiasm there is for the urban fantasy kind of thing. Yeah, cool. Okay, let's do it. What, what's urban fantasy for a starter then? I have no idea. <laughs> well, I had to wiki it a bit because everybody seems to have their own ideas, but it seems to be uh, a normal modern setting or contemporary setting, but with a fantastical element to it. So there seems to be a couple of camps. There's kind of the teen fiction fantasies kind of thing. So I'm probably thinking there's like different braces of novels that you could go into. Um, things like the Dresden Files are very popular. I don't know if that counts as young adult or just proper adult. Who knows? But, I mean, even from our yesteryear, you can think about things like um, The Tomorrow People. Oh, yeah. So the young, yeah. the young kids won't know what that is. Uh, but, you know, Sapphire and Steel, all that kind of stuff. Coming forward to more modern things like um, Supernatural. There's only five seasons to that. I don't let anybody tell you any different because that's where it ends. <laughs> You're weird about Supernatural, aren't you? Just weird. Yeah, the first well, it was supposed to end after five seasons, but then they got like cloaks of $100 bills and decided to carry it on, and it's just <laughs> the story had already <laughs> finished. <laughs> but, but anyway, so it just proves the popularity of the genre thing. But then you've got stuff like, you know, uh, Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett did Good Omens about demons and angels in a modern setting. I think that kind of fits in. Something like The X-Files probably counts as well, where they had a bit of a monster of the week, but it was always something weird and unnatural that you didn't get. And the rest of the world seemed to carry on oblivious to what was going on. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've got stuff more modern like True Blood and all those kind of things. I think there's just anything where the majority of people might not know what's going on, but actually there's all this fantastic either magical or fairy or weird or supernatural thing going on in the background that occasionally surfaces. I think that's the sort of thing we're talking about. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it does. I mean, the last thing you said, you know, a place where nobody really knows what's going on, but there's supernatural stuff in the background sounds like a gaming convention. Um, I'll take <laughs> I take your definition for what it actually is. It, yeah, it's been going for a long time, isn't it? I had to talk to the current Mrs. Baz about this as well because she's well into her urban fantasy, and uh, she likes fiction, and she, she's an author as well, which helps. And there's a big old blend with young adult. There's an awful lot of young adult stuff about at the moment, which would probably fall into that category. But even she said, as the expert to me, it's a massive category. She said, what sort of urban fantasy are you talking about? Because it, it runs the gamut from from uh, little animated sprites running around in a, in a sunlit glade kind of Walt Disney style thing, albeit in the middle of a city, to something quite dark and creepy and... You know, and potentially even something as dark as True Detective, of which there is only one season. Don't anyone tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Quite so right. that probably counts. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but but for me, mate, I, I keep getting it mixed up with uh, um, urban occult games because you know, that big list of stuff you ran through. Totally get it. And in my head, I was translating it all into a big old library of RPG books that have got similar titles, sometimes very similar titles, that try to tap into that thing. So it's a big old genre that could be played for laughs as much as it could be played for tears. 
but I suspect when we talk about the stuff that we like, we're going to get a little bit down the darker end of the street, perhaps. It's going to I be a bit more so. murderous, perhaps. Don't know. Well, I'm going to say to you that Call of Cthulhu is an urban fantasy, really. Okay. I mean, okay. It's, it's not it's not a happy one. It's not a fairy dancing about a glade, that's for sure. But I think the whole setup of the game is that, um, you know, generally speaking, everything's supposed to be normal on a level. It's only the investigators digging that find out about these otherworldly things and creatures that come through gates and all that kind of stuff. Hmm. I mean, okay, there's a cosmic horror, which takes it in one direction. But I think as far as the general sort of mood of the thing in terms of they've got normalities just to like a a mask across what's actually happening and it's only your protagonist that really get to dig in and find these secrets I think that really fits into it would you agree or do you think I'm talking nonsense no no that sounds about right to me yeah I agree with Gaz as usual but um, that sounds about right I think that's that's one of the defining things in the RPG setup as well isn't it where you have like a veil or a gauntlet or a consult your your thesaurus about the various things that RPG writers have called it where the the conceit is that you start off as like everyday people you might have had um, something happen in your recent life or your recent background that's probably like turned you on to an invisible world that nobody else knows as you say and then once you step through that you're in a you're in just in a different world and I think you're right mate. I think the Cthulhu mythos is part of that that's supposed to be a really gradual thing though isn't it where you discover it piece by piece and it gets bigger and bigger and more cosmic and um, sure. which is one way of doing it and then the other way is is something where you, you literally there's a revelation and all of a sudden you're a, a living breathing member of the occult underground and the whole world looks totally different and you could arguably never go back so you end up in a completely different life and nothing looks the same anymore and you can see ghosts which you couldn't see before and it's almost all revealed to you in one go but I'd, I'd definitely put Cthulhu at one end of it and and I would absolutely go for all of those games that probably have Call of Cthulhu as their granddad uh, stuff like Cult uh, In Nomine perhaps uh, Nephilim definitely that's that's got uh, loads of, of hooks and, and connections to Call of Cthulhu I put them in the same sort of stable so would I be in the right ballpark with those sort of games guys? Yeah sounds right to me I think you mentioned uh, Nephilim there which is one where you've got uh, several past lives I mean, the game itself, I don't think anyone could actually work out what you were supposed to actually do, but it was very cool that in character <laughs> generation you could find out that you used to be like a Babylonian priestess and one of Charlemagne's knights and various other bits and pieces. Mm. That was all cool. And I think that feeds into the kind of darling of the 90s, which was the World of Darkness settings, Vampire the Masquerade obviously being the most prominent, but then all the other iterations of various supernatural creatures that followed. And that took it from being this weird thing that you're kind of exposed to into you're one of the monsters mm. and how do you deal with that I think that was that's very much still in theme and I actually prefer the more recent iterations or how they've done it in terms of New World of Darkness you can all just make mortals and then you put a skin on top if you want to but I really like the idea of you playing mortals and knowing there's or finding out there's vampires and wheels and whatever else in there and they're the antagonists mm. Um, but you know that that's a good way of approaching it from several different angles. I think. Yeah, this is this is all firmly rooted in the nineties for me. It's a, it's a bit of a, I think it's a golden decade of gaming. Um, and I was sort of flicking back through some games, some of the titles I just mentioned, and just checking them out to see what the publication dates were. And you can see a, a real seam of kind of millennial games, I'll call them, that include all the ones we've mentioned and stuff like Conspiracy X and Witchcraft. Um, and, and well, just loads of games that that had that kind of 
angst. Angst is, was a loaded term back then. I think we can get away with yeah. it now. It's 2016, but they were kind of angsty. And it, and it's interesting as well because it falls directly in the patch before D&D came back with Wizards of the Coast. So like fantasy gaming had really kind of died off. There wasn't much going on in the late 90s with that kind of thing. So there was room for games like Whispering Vault and Over the Edge and, and they were getting loads of attention. They were kind of hip for a while. And TV did the same thing, didn't it? With, as you mentioned, with the X-Files. And um, and it, and it it did get pretty cool to to be that kind of trench coat and katana <laughs> kind of archetype, <laughs> which maybe went a bit over the top at time. It, it's, I mean, stupidly, like years back, you you look back and you think the vampires were just superheroes, really, with fangs, and everybody was playing them for their big old powers. But if you read the yeah. books exactly as they suggested you play it, I, I I still think now that they they were trying something really good all pre-story gaming as well largely i would say um so yeah. you know some of the games we're going to talk about in a bit more detail they're pretty trad games aren't they a couple of hundred pages fat you know combat rules stuff for what happens when you fall downstairs and throw grenades and stuff yeah. you know it's, it was a real tipping point i think and, and, it, and it probably led to some really interesting game designs down the line yeah, I think stuff like Vampire, it was a really good idea, really good conceit, uh, hampered by an old school system that was, well, it wasn't old school, it was contemporary at the time, but mm. there wasn't really the um, the thought on design that there is today. So it was just kind of like, well, this is how you make a role-playing game. And despite the, the fact you're playing Wraith or Orpheus or something like that, where you're all ghosts, they still have rules for electrocution and drowning. It's like, well, yeah. I've got an incorporeal form, that doesn't really make any sense, yeah. but... At the time, it was just like, well, we're writing a role-playing game. We've got to include all these things as well because they've always been included in role-playing games, so we have to include them. Mm-hmm. But if you played, you know, Vampire now, if you played it with Hot War, for example, which is all about agendas and hidden secrets and, you know, the the different interactions and relationships and sort of trying to get one over on other people or discover secrets, that, that would work perfectly. I think it, just at the time, the role-playing uh, design was just at a stage where someone had created a war game and then D&D and then things hadn't moved on too much from there so the idea was great but unfortunately the execution was just a little bit um, behind the times really or mm. behind what we've currently got it, 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 you know, there's all kinds of things about that like the, the text they told you about in the books was very good and had a good idea but then the sample adventures they brought out were just you know awful and yeah, really well, fought against what what the game was trying to said it was about you know yeah absolutely right mate um uh, one of the, one of the things that that I always struggled with in those games, and it shouldn't have been so hard in World of Darkness games because they always had clans and tribes and all the rest of it, was was how to gel together. What I'll use a really traditional term, here, but how to gel a party together, uh, and and that would be one of the things that stopped me playing more urban fantasy or urban occult games than I do, is that I often find it a bit tricky to try and imagine what the group looks like without it becoming a bit sort of Scooby Doo, which is a bit weird and. And there are loads of concepts. Maybe I just haven't got the imagination, but the the idea of a a group of four or five people trotting around in this this strange invisible world, and quite what their motive is and what their motivations are, and the World of Darkness games never really answered that for me, apart from trying to come up with internal politics, which doesn't really get push my buttons. To be honest, I, I kind of get it, and I'm sure it's all fun in a live action role play. It was always enormous fun to do that sort of stuff around the table. I couldn't really get into it, so. Um, so did you ever what stopped stopped you playing occult games like that mate or, or did you never have an issue with that and all of your guys were happy to get on board and just say we're doing it for shits and giggles I don't know 
Yeah, so we've tried several different campaigns at different times with different people, you know, to try and get it to work. But sometimes you're fighting against the way the thing was set up. So we played a, a werewolf campaign and one of the characters was from the tribe that hated men. So any time a male NPC turned up, that was kind of a bit of an issue. Another guy was a red talon, so hated humans. Another guy was, you know, one of the natural living ones or almost a glass walker wanted to be in the cities and nobody else did and they kind of set up all these different factions mm. in ways that they they would then be at, at odds with each other and the game world itself, which didn't really add to kind of like you're saying that bit about what are we all here for and what we're trying to create a story about, you know, what what we're gaming for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there were there were better examples, and I think games generally have got better since. But um, I think well, let's take let's take an example. And if I was going to try and sell you on an urban fantasy game, and we can argue about whether it is urban fantasy or horror or something else. Is Unknown Armies, which is one from that kind of period, of, I think 90s, maybe early 2000s. 98, um, according and to that's, Google. 98, that'll do then. Yeah, it counts, stick. So for once, I'm talking about a 90s game, and it's not Earth Dawn. But <laughs> Unknown Armies uh, deals fundamentally, and it's, it's kind of a misleading title. I'd heard it, this game uh, announced to me or advertised, or people have spoken about it, and I assumed it was some kind of war game or something like that. But um, the unknown armies it, it refers to are actually um, people groups, factions dealing with the occult underground, which is kind of this mysterious thing that's going on in the background that your characters will have been exposed to and then operate within. So it's good for lots of reasons. And one of the bits I like about it, certainly if you pick up the second edition, which is uh, a much expanded version. The original was pretty good, but the second edition really sort of is padded out and got better examples. Well, the first things you do when you make your cabal or whatever you, you call yourselves is, is work out why. You know, what, what are you all together for? And then it gives you a little bit of a tip about what sort of resources you have and that sort of thing. So it's, it's not a massive amount of detail. You get a few paragraphs on each. But it really sort of sets out with like, well, what, what do you want to play for? What are you about? What was the triggering event that introduced your character to this um, CD or uh, mysterious world that you're dealing with so I think that addresses one of your concerns initially about mm. vampire and that sort of thing is that the first thing the game tells you to do is make characters and work out why they're all together and what they're doing so that was a great step forward for its time definitely and then another bit about it that I want to mention there is that you can operate it at different levels so there's kind of a street level where you could just be a taxi driver or a plumber or whatever else and have somehow had some unnatural or mysterious event and that's brought you into this world or a kind of more global level where you've got um, you might have powers or some kind of magic or something like that perhaps and then a cosmic scale where you can try and become a god basically, that sort of thing so it, it's got a bit of flexibility there in terms of the sort of stories and different types of urban fantasy we've mentioned, you could pitch it at various levels depending on what it is that interests you, so I think that's a good starting point, would you be comfortable with that if you know you want to get around with a group of people and decide how how the game's going to be shaped, what sort of level you want to pitch it at, would that help introduce you to the kind of oeuvre? Yeah 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 totally and it's 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 almost trite advice these days isn't it because since 1998 and i don't think unknown armies was the first to do this but that second edition really cemented it that kind of advice is is front and center in all games now isn't it spend your first session doing your characters do do it as a group do it with the gm at the table everybody's contributing to the creation of the world everyone's talking about scenes they want to see and the reasons they're together because you meet in a tavern just isn't going to cut it with these games that are about far more sophisticated themes and tropes and 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 ideas than than just killing stuff and taking its loot 
um and and i and i actually i picked up uh unknown army second edition again off my pdf shelf because i knew we were going to be talking about it tonight and i read through the first 40 pages or so in a bit of a hurry and i was i was surprised because i my memory of unknown armies was from first edition i don't think it had so much of that stuff in it in the first edition it did have what is a role-playing game which I didn't really need to read back then, but it didn't have so much of the how do you actually play this game. And they've taken out the what is a role-playing game. That isn't there anymore in the second edition. Instead, they've they've done exactly <laughs> what you suggest. And, and there's some really good bits in there for every one of those three levels about how to pull your guys together. And and I can't think of any better ideas than the examples they they put in there. I kind of want to <laughs> play them all. Um, yeah, that it, it, unknown armies frightens me a little bit in in just how full of good stuff it is. It's almost not inspiring because you just want to play that stuff. It doesn't inspire you necessarily to come up with your own because <laughs> I don't think I don't think I could beat the idea of oh what is it? One of them's one of them's about you all play young men and you are insanely good-looking young men, not necessarily clever or skilled or anything else like that, but charming and good-looking. And, and you're all basically toy boys of, of rich Hollywood wives who employ you as gardeners and pool boys and the rest of it, which means you've got loads of free time, access to money, and loads of good connections, and you're kind of bored of a night and you're just trying to drive around in other people's cars looking for stuff to do. <laughs> <laughs> and if that doesn't get you into trouble in a city like L.A., uh, at night then, then you, you're playing the game wrong and that, that's just like, right. that's just one thing out of a list of like 10 which are all better than that one you know that was the worst <laughs> of the examples and, yeah. and, that, and that runs right through the book so they do it it does a really good job of of holding your hand I think it's a game book that players probably need to read as much as GMs it's not one of those I'll tell you everything you just need to think of a concept and off we go jobs I think you need to invest a bit of time in it but it's well worth it it's really good reading yeah definitely I think the, the GM section's pretty similar as well it's, it's one of those that reminded me when indie games first came out and they started telling you how to game almost and uh, me and several others from my side of the street were all sort of saying well this is all obvious isn't it this is all common sense mm. And someone pointed out that, well, it is to you, Gary, because you've been gaming for 20 years at that point. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah, fair enough. If you haven't done, then probably some of this stuff is, is new to you. Uh, and, you know, certainly if you're picking up the book for the first time, it's brilliant stuff. But a lot of it is that kind of common sense gemming that uh, perhaps a book like D&D or something at the time certainly didn't give you. And, and iterations since are good for specific games, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in Unknown Armies about just gaming generally and how to you know run a good game and that kind of thing and play one. Hmm. I, like, I like the layers in it as well. You, you talked about the three levels of the game too. So when you, when you play Unknown Armies, I, I would suspect if your first exposure to it as a player would probably be to play the street level game, which is the first yeah. first in there, um, and that's you, you would you would know everything about the game as a player and almost as a GM in about 70 pages. It's not massive. There's quite a lot of text in there. It's full of rules. It's, it's in no way just make it all up as you go along. Here's some themes. It's packed with themes and packed with really good little bits of fiction. I mean, and I mean genuinely good fiction. Game fiction is notoriously rubbish. Um, <laughs> but this this is quality stuff. And sometimes it's only a paragraph long, but it makes you close the book and sort of like look at the ceiling and sort of wonder at what, what that would mean and what you could do with it. And if you look at the street level stuff, you actually end up with something that other games would would sell you as a core book, because it's it's everything about your character, about generating it, your skills, 
um, how to do stuff. A big chapter on fighting. It's got a surprising amount of combat mm. in it. And I think it's because it's American. It's also got plenty of stuff on guns on it too. I think if I played it in the UK, which I'd be tempted to do, that might be a, a chapter I'd gloss over. And then the really good stuff is all the stuff about the sanity or the um, the, the madness meters. Um, I, I'll put you on the spot, Gaz, because I think you probably remember more about it than I do. But the madness meters seem to be to be a sanity mechanic done right. They're really good. Um, yeah. Any chance you could expand on those for us? Yep, I just need to make a little note about guns and stuff because we need to go back on that. There's something <laughs> else to say on there. But yeah, madness meters. So you have these tracks, and there's um, there's five different um, uh, values to track on, on your madness meters. And one's self, and one's isolation, one's violence, one's the unnatural, and there's another one that escapes me at the minute. But Helplessness. Um, helplessness, there you go. <laughs> and you can have up to kind of five hard notches. Uh, I think it is, or ten the other way, or something like that. Uh, basically, it's, what it is is um, if you've got not got any anything marked off in these in these tracks, it means you're a, a little lamb, you're fresh to the world, uh, but anything might impact you. So as soon as you see someone getting mugged in the street or stabbed in the face or something, you're going to have to make a selfless, uh, sorry, a, uh, a violence check because as you see the blood pouring out of their face to see how you react. Now, if you succeed. Then you can suck it up. You can mark a hard notch and think, "Well, you know, I, I can. My character can handle this." If you fail, though, you've got one of the natural human reactions of fight, flight, or just freeze up and, and don't do anything. Just kind of go a little bit catatonic for a bit, or not know what to do. So you've got this um, ongoing activity throughout the game that every time you see something violent, you may or may not have to make violence checks. Once you've got some so many hard notches, certain activities won't impact you. So if you've seen someone being tortured and you're okay with that, seeing a knife fight or someone get punched isn't going to bother you. So it sort of seems good in game mechanic terms at first to get more hard notches so that you don't wig out when you see something unnatural or you feel isolated or whatever else. But if you get too far that way, you become callous, you get hardened and you essentially can't... There's a game mechanic bit to it, which we don't really need to go into too detail, but it will negatively impact your character because you become a sociopath, basically. So you've kind of got this balance of wanting to be not uh, not totally afraid of everything or unaware of yourself or anything like that, but also I don't want to go too far down the path that you end up just a monster, really, and this kind of unfeeling creature stalking the occult underground. So it's, it's a really nice way of doing it, and because you have to keep making checks on these different tracks at different levels, it means there's always times when you might panic or flee or lash out or, or whatever else. Uh, and it's a good, nice little fluid mechanic, I think, that helps... It helps cement stuff happening immediately to your character and, and what they're known for. If one of the other characters, for example, has got hardened, you know, right up to the max in violence, you just know them as a stone cold killer. You know, you know that they generally don't care. They will will hurt anyone and not actually care about it. They won't feel a thing, and that'll impact or should impact the dynamic within your party and that sort of thing. So really useful, and it's, it's a lot more. It's a lot better than the black and white Cthulhu aspect, which you often get in terms of I'm I'm fine or I'm bonkers. And there's, you know, there's a lot more uh, granularity to it, uh, and and you could have someone who's particularly violent, like a mobster or someone like that, but terrified of being left on the road or not understand the unnatural or something. It allows a lot more granularity. Yeah, uh, uh, what I really like about it is it's um, it doesn't treat mental trauma in an offhand way, or, or it's quite sensitive about it. It's quite realistic about it too. You know, that stuff like this is is more painful than hit point loss. 
in in every kind of way and more affecting of your character certainly than hit point loss where you're either walking around fine or you're dead um and and it also gives you a clue as to what to do when you lose your shit so you mentioned it, yes. is it fight flight and paralysis i think and it's basically it's yeah. pick one of those three which is a real sort of apocalypse world <laughs> um thing isn't it yeah um pick one of this one of these lists and, and none of them are good um but they're all appropriate um and and it's often caused by the sort of stuff that other games would gloss over so you know fighting in this game and, and to bring you back to guns guys to segue back to that any kind of like a violence in this game any kind of combat is absolutely traumatizing and if you've ever been in a real fight or just a tussle or anything else like that either as a kid or hopefully not as a grown-up but it does happen you're left shaking afterwards you know the adrenaline's going and you've got shock and and if you've got you know if you've got a wound it really really hurts you don't want to run around like john mcclain just you know smoking <laughs> more fags and wiping your bloody hand on your vest it just this this game really it is brutal but not in a in a disabling way so it's not that realistic that you can't play the game anymore which is another thing that that, that keeps me away from traditional call of cthulhu where you're, you're fine and then you're bonkers which means you just get to act like a lunatic for a bit and then when you're really a lunatic you lock your character away in a sanatorium and that doesn't seem to be a huge amount of fun for gameplay stuff so those madness yeah. meters they're brilliant and i've seen them imported into loads of different games and and guns is probably the thing that's going to get you notches pretty quickly isn't it yeah absolutely so the, there's a weird dichotomy within unknown armies that on the one hand they're trying to dissuade you from getting into fights and shooting people with guns because as far as the system goes being shot with a gun's really lethal you might have say a really tough character might have say 60 or 70 body score or something like that basically hit points when you roll to shoot someone with a gun for your to hit roll that's also the damage as well so if you roll a 47 to hit that's 47 hit points out of your 50 or 60 that you might have it's really really lethal and as you've mentioned that the because it's a greg stelzer game or he was one of the writers there's lots of like nice intricate mechanics so i've heard it described as brp plus but i think it's far better than brp there's just loads going on with match successes uh, a zero one and a, a double zero kind of a critical and a fumble but they were they were called in second edition if they kept it but it was something like was it our cower open a kind of whoop ass mm-hmm. um bohika bend over here it comes again when you roll the double zero and that, those are little touches of flavor that are dotted throughout mm-hmm. the book but loads of bit about match successes so if you're all a 22 and a success it's really good but a 77 it's a fail is really bad and that kind of stuff loads of bits and pieces but the the combat section actually starts out with a little bit of uh, sort of fiction almost or a, a story it it's starts off with like six ways to stop a fight and lists ways that you should not get into a fight in the first place despite all these intricate rules that go with it as well um, and there's a little bit of text about there's someone out there somewhere who had loving parents and like watching fluffy clouds and said his pleases and thank yous and all the rest of it but somehow the two of you are going to end up in a dirty little room with a knife between you and one of you is going to have to kill each other and all that kind of stuff. I'll not read the whole thing, it's, but it's definitely a nice little bit of text to read. It's it's quite horrifying. It's, you know, the the mm-hmm. be, the worst thing about it is not that you're going to have to like stick your knife into someone and one of you is going to be sort of vomiting to the sound of a faded heartbeat. But it's the fact that you could have changed this. You could have made a different decision. You could have like not had the knife or not gone to that room or agreed to go your separate ways, whatever it is. So it really strongly kind of points you towards 
unlike a lot of games at the time, which were, like you say, combat oriented, this is more kind of like, you, we've given you lots of good combat rules, but here's lots of reasons why you shouldn't have, you know, mm-hmm. fights. And, th- and there's a separate bit as well on guns and saying gun controls and what happens when police see people walking around with shooters and that kind of thing. So I think can't try and stop players from doing the usual, oh, there's a kill feeling monster over there, we're all going to get a dynamite and shotguns. You know, it kind of wants to avoid that kind of stuff and bring it down to more human level. And what would you actually do as a normal person if faced with this stuff? You know, would you get a gun? But is it really the best option? Would you stab another human being in the heart? All questions to be asked. So I think that was a, it's something I've seen very rarely in role-playing games. Mm. Yeah, and that's that's just the street-level stuff, isn't it? But you use those rules yeah. all the way through the other levels later on. And that street-level stuff is like, I don't know, um, it's like Vertigo Comics kind of gritty urban stuff where you just end up in trouble. And it, and it would fuel loads of good films and books and that kind of thing, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it it might sound like a bit of a reach this one, but it's probably a film that everyone's seen. But it kind of reminds me of The Hangover, which is I know played for laughs, but it's just <laughs> yeah, actually, it's people yeah. getting into all kinds of just trouble just by just by pushing things a bit too far, really, and just trying to uh, just trying to start off having fun, then it gets darker and darker until there's some pretty bleak stuff happening, and and that's all in the first seventy pages with a, with a complete set of rules to go with it too. So yeah, I mean, already I really like those rules for that kind of game. I think they just make a lot of sense. They're trad enough to sort of like you know tick the boxes for me in in that way, but they are absolutely packed with really really well written inspirational stuff. There aren't many books where you could read down the success levels of multiple skills from one to a hundred and find those tables interesting, but these ones really are. You know, mm. there's um. If there's the ten levels of violence that that the GM might call on you to roll against, and and every single level is just something that makes you just want to go, oh really, oh man, and you can see it. It's, it's not just like you know, easy, medium, hard, extreme, which is what you would see in a target number list in any other game. It's all got really good prose, which inspires you, and then it yeah. and then then it all goes mad and starts bringing magic into it. Which is like <laughs> literally the next level, isn't it? And I, I don't even think you need to get to that stage to have a bloody good game of unknown armies about the occult underground. But then when you start mixing in the magic, that's when it becomes not a generic urban occult game and becomes utterly bonkers. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the good things about unknown armies for me is that I, in my games anyway, I kind of like actions and consequences of those actions and. I know I generally tend to lean towards more difficult choices and there is no right answer and other people prefer there to be a bit more hope and light in the universe but whichever way you want to cut it one of the, the good themes that sort of runs through Unknown Armies is this kind of like you have to make some choices and live with them or you know you can take a risk now to get some benefit out of it but you know it's up to you where you're going to roll the dice and do it even stuff like you know the um, the car chases and things like that it, you'd start off so many car lengths I think ahead or behind someone but how you get further away is by the taking risks or taking insane risks. And if they pay off, then it works out well for you. And obviously, if they don't, it doesn't. And that sort of stuff feeds into the magic chapter as well. It seems to have these three levels with stuff. But if, if you're an adult, adept, sorry, if we're if talking the kind of um, magic levels and that sort of stuff now, um, you can get charges for spells. And they do all kinds of crazy stuff. And you kind of have minor, um, significant and major, I think it is, but you have to pay for them all. You have to get your charges first before you can do your cool shit. 
And that's where the really interesting bits of ADEPS come in, is, is how they all work. So, for example, a classic one is the dipsomancer who has to get drunk for his powers to work. So, ends up absolutely shedded, having drunk loads of book fast, can do all kinds of crazy stuff with his powers, but can't walk to save his life. And, you know, as soon as he's got to run away from baddies, he's in real trouble, unless he's his powers. Or the um, is it entropomancers, I think they're my favourite. They have to take, they just get luck on their side. They can store up luck, basically. But to store that up, they've got to, to do crazy stuff like run across a motorway and hope they don't get hit by a car. If they don't, brilliant. They've you know, generated a significant charge. But they might get hit at 70 miles an hour by a car and that kind of thing. And each one's got their own obsession. I think they're interested, aren't they? And, the, you know, there's pornomancers, bibliomancers, cleomancers, all kinds of stuff. And they've all got a thing they're really interested in. Uh, but I like that idea of powering up your abilities first by having to put yourself at risk to then have your power later mm. on and do something crazy. Yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody in this game has got an obsession. That's what makes it not just a generic modern-day game. Everybody's got an obsession. That obsession might be playing chess. I don't know why we keep bringing up chess. <laughs> but anyway, we'll uh, it may well be playing chess. It might be talking about Earththorn on the radio. It might, but if, if you're an adept, your obsession is your magic because you ca- you can't do it part time. You have got to be nuts deep in the stuff to really make it work. Because this isn't just Paul Daniel stuff with with card tricks and sorting ladies in half. It's genuine will working that changes the nature of the universe. So, so all of those adepts are just nuts about their thing. Um, and at a mundane level, even if you're not one of the, the magic wielders in this game, if you're a bit more of a mundane, you'll still have an obsession. And that obsession, it comes down to the mechanical level. I think you can flip-flop your rolls. If you roll a 74, yeah. you can say it was a 47. So you can turn it round, which is just one of those little neat mechanical tricks. People like dice, and they like manipulating numbers and so on, and that's really cool. Um, but the thing I really like, you, you mentioned it there, guys, about, about the adepts is the charges that they get. So to get like their, uh, in generic terms, get their mana points back, they have to do those things. But the difference between minor, significant, and major is serious. So like your dipsomancer can just like neck a swig of whiskey from a bottle in a brown bag, and that would be probably something minor. Or they could have, I think the example in the book is, they can drink the last dregs of beer from Elvis Presley's last bottle that he had <laughs> before he dies. And that means that Elvis Presley's last beer bottle, or the, or even the cap of it, is really significant because it's part of the world and it's got a history to it and there's resonance and there's, there's loads of cool stuff. That means that all the other dipsomancers in the world are after that artifact because that mm. gives them major charges. Or it might be JFK's coffee cup when he was dealing with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you bring all of those being bits into the game and that's got to be... That's just got to generate way more story than than sleeping for a night and waking up with your spells memorized. <laughs> yeah. The the only downside of it is if you've got more than a couple of these adepts in your group, you, your story is charging off in all kinds of mad ways because they're so obsessed with their magic that they're going to do that and, and kind of like not follow any plots. Or maybe that's fine. And and just by following those plots, it brings everybody along and 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 the story tells itself. I think that might be part of it, mightn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think this, yeah, it's like I said, the, the document itself, the book just drips all these different ideas. Like you say, you start off just reading what our character's about and you, you get going. You start reading the, how strong you are and each level of that tells you more detail than most things do. And you get to magic and things like that. And it's, it all, there's just so many ideas floating around. I don't know how you can play this game and not just have just stuff to do. 
The GM, really, I think after a couple of sessions, can probably sit back and let the players sort out all the odd trouble they just create for themselves. Mm. Really useful stuff and interesting. And like I said, if you have Elvis Presley's Last Bottle or things like that, that can become the focus of an adventure itself, that someone, you you know, you dip some answer, finds out that that thing's on the market or all kinds of stuff, you know. Really good, rich environment and world to live in. So it's, I, I'm not sure, the thing I'm not probably sure about, or I, I'm not quite sure how you do now, just because I think whenever I read the book, I just get so many ideas about what they've written, as you've mentioned, is how you'd pour a different world into that if you wanted to play in the True Blood universe or whatever else, or Buffy or something else. I'm not entirely sure because it's so closely welded together uh, or meshed together the rules and the background and the character generation and the adepts and all that kind of stuff and the cosmology. Do you think it'd be relatively easy to, to play, I don't know, Dresden Files using an armies or something like that? I, I think at street level it would do. I think street level is a really good modern contemporary rule set for just playing out skills and having good characters and and, and and a lot of that just comes down to like you know what do you want to do and bring in go, to go together the group I think once you start putting for want of a better term the magic system from unknown armies in you're now playing unknown armies because I don't think yeah. it's a generic system I, I know that it's got loads of little callbacks to what you would call and I'm doing scare quotes here but the real occult so I know it's got yeah. that but I don't think it's broadly so applicable. I mean, the idea of a dipsomancer, someone who gets their charges off of being rotten drunk, that was new to me when I read it 20 years ago. And I, I, maybe I'm not well read enough, but I don't see enough of that in in the other kind of urban fantasy fiction that we're talking about, let alone pornomancy and some of the other slightly more, even more outre stuff. So, yeah, the idea of where these guys get their their mojo from, I think is a little bit unique to Unknown Armies, and that's what makes it Unknown Armies. We'll talk about the next level in a bit, I'm sure, but that makes it even more so. So yeah. it all ramps up. But I think up to up to that magic bit, I think it, I hadn't really considered it till rereading it recently. I think you've got a really good modern game that you could apply yeah. to almost anything. Yeah, I think I agree. I like that. Um, I think when you read through the the sort of spell section and stuff like that, there's things in there that are just bonkers. I can't remember the full details because it's been many a year now, but I, I seem to remember one of the sort of major spells you could do was create a homunculus of yourself, which in D&D or some game like that's probably just been the right level, and then you can do it happily. But in other armies, you've got to like pluck your eye out and, <laughs> and hope you don't mess the spell roll up because otherwise you've only got one left <laughs> if you mess the first one up. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's that real kind of all or nothing or you know high risk, high gain kind of element to the game which really charges me up I think I really, I really like that kind of element to it and there's kind of a progression as well isn't there when you play that you're quite happy with minor charges at first but it doesn't take too long before you realise the power you could have or the things you could do or the situation becomes desperate enough that you think I need a few significant charges to be able to get away with this or so I can get my friends out of the trouble they're in or whatever it might be and from there it's on to I need a major charge and I'm going to have to do something absolutely ridiculous to be able to get this so that we don't all die or whatever the the conceit of the game is or how desperate things have got at that point yeah it's but, definitely going about obsessions and that obsession becomes addiction doesn't it because yes. you, your magicians they're, they're more than obsessed they kind of live off this stuff um, and, and you know and that's brilliant because that just that drives that drives the game forward and then there is a, going way back to very very early in the book there's a couple of paragraphs about making interesting characters not effective ones and 
and about having making sure that you don't be too protective of your own character because you could just you could generate a really good accountant and sit in your office and never leave the office all day and that would be a perfectly <laughs> viable character but it isn't going to have any fun and and you should really try and break your character and get into situations where you're going to be in loads and loads of trouble and they don't put necessarily a huge mechanical heft into that like fate does by paying you for getting into trouble it, it just it kind of treats you like a grown-up really and says this is going to be a more interesting game if you guys go out there and try and mix it up a little bit so it's just yes. encouragement and, and, and then the game delivers and you end up in the sort of situations where the only way out of it is to go overdrawn on your mojo big style yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. whether that's be pulling in connections from the sort of connections you really don't want to be messing around with or borrowing money off the wrong people or just just doing a bit of casual breaking and entering because no one will surely notice this one time <laughs> 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 then four months later you find yourself a completely different person and that's a good thing that's that's where the campaign is at isn't it as you just find yourself yeah. spiraling out of control in order to try and retain control yeah, I think the best sort of campaigns I've played, it feel like it's either directed by Quentin Tarantino or it's Fargo or something like that, do you know what I mean? Where it's You've got that veneer of normality and all the rest of it, and like you say, someone just takes a little bit of a risk or pushes in a little direction to see what will happen, and the whole ball of yarn starts unraveling before your eyes. Yeah, that, that's, that's a really good call as well, mate. Those kind of films, like your Pulp Fiction definitely those, those kind of quentin tarantino early films of the 90s they really do inform this kind of stuff don't they um, and david lynch as well those kind of films a bit of twin peaks that's all in there too i think yeah that's very yes. interesting okay um and, and, and then there's uh and then, <laughs> then there's the big cosmic level stuff where things really get out of hand uh, and that, that's a place <laughs> i haven't played too much but i've read it and i and it reminds me in certain ways of playing really high level D and D, where just like or, or high level mage to bring it back to the world of darkness, where the the rules just don't exist anymore. It, it all gets slightly crazy, and that's where the backstory that they've been alluding to for the first two thirds of the book really kicks in. Those little end of chapter bits about the the fiction behind the game, and and then it all starts to make sense. And I suppose spoilers are going to happen in the next five minutes or so, aren't they? Yeah. But do you know what? I don't think it matters. It's like saying that, you know, Call of Cthulhu, there's a mythos. You know, <laughs> it only takes five minutes. I don't think it really blunts your enjoyment of it. So, uh, yeah, this, yeah, this so, game so came out so in 1998. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the universe gets remade every now and again. Of course it does. So, obviously. <laughs> And I can't remember the exact number. It's, it seems a little bit like Jehovah's Witnesses with 144 places in heaven or whatever it's supposed to be. But the, is it 333 avatars or something? I can't remember. I'll look it up. <sighs> yeah, I'm, I'm a bit woolly on this. But you have, um, if you imagine like a tarot deck or something like that, you might have the Fool or uh, the Mystic Hermaphrodite and all these kind of different archetypes that are uh, essentially godlike or gods themselves but there can only ever be one of them and there's different people will be trying to ascend to that position and once this uh is it called the unnoble clergy or something it's something of that nature Invisible once they're all in place it, yeah that could be it the kind of the the world remade how they want it to be and then it all starts all over again this cycle starts again so at the cosmic level you're basically trying to become a god walker or one of the uh the gods on earth as it were for want of a better phrase from I guess 
really interesting stuff, but a bit, like you say, it's completely bonkers and off the wall. I don't think it's something I've actually done as a campaign. I might have tried it as a, a one-off here and there. Um, hmm. But yeah, interesting. And if you if you like your fantasy at a really high level, I want to discuss how would you would remake the universe if if only you could get that one ticket that's left, that one last place. I think it's definitely there. Have you got much more on that? I can't really remember too many details to be honest. Yeah, it, it kind of um, uh, it sits in the GM's realm initially because I think if you're new to unknown armies, you would start playing street level and then the uh, the occult underground would would unfold. So this is at the higher levels, but that means that the GM who's prepping their game has probably got on their notes somewhere a couple of these ascended guys the invisible clergy um, and they probably picked their favourite ones uh, uh, so a modern day example might be icons in 13th age really yeah. big movers and shakers but a, a, but a, a cosmic level and that'll be like the flavour of your game um, and I, I suppose the obvious one to talk about is like the naked goddess uh, I won't talk about it too much because just go and look it up but it's all good fun uh, but this is this is from a person who ascended while making um, a, a particular kind of gentleman's film, and uh, <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> that just just read up on that. It's a it's a couple of paragraphs, and it, and it will blow your mind. And that can be the spine of a whole campaign, and it will be one of those things that that players always say they love, uh, which is where it, it kind of very slow burn. It slowly unfolds as you get deeper and deeper. And some of the stuff that you probably saw in your first couple of sessions that might just have been backdrop dressing like some posters or a, a video cassette you found in in some trailer park, um, just you know bits of throwaway stuff, and you start seeing the links behind stuff, and then you realise that you're just working your way through through the the edges of the occult underground. But at the centre of every campaign is going to be at least one of these clergy things going on, and probably two or three sort of scrapping each other to climb up the greasy pole to get to the top. And then the really big reveal in all of that is that your characters are actually on this greasy pole as well. So these aren't just NPCs. You can be these NPCs. You can actually have godhood. All you've got to do is make sure you're number one. And there's a whole bunch of other people trying to do the same thing. And they may be doing it longer than you or better than you. And there's people above you who want to keep you down as well. And then your party again it's a stupid term to use for that kind of thing will either be you know working as one to get one of you there because then you'll get looked after afterwards or you all become rivals and and the stakes just get massive if the stakes of the entire universe that's big stuff i wouldn't start my game there you can it suggests it as well doesn't it you know if you yeah. and i think if you were well into your unknown armies and you're going to a con game and you knew what was going on and you had a, a basic flavor of it at the very least that might be a great game uh, but I wouldn't start there and, and unfortunately I think it is unfortunate like high level D&D &D stuff it's often read about it's often aspired to but it would take some effort to get there if you started at, at street level and mm. just played every week um, it would be a great journey I'd love to see it happen but I wouldn't bank on getting there um, yeah. I, I, stuff happens doesn't it I mean when this came out in 1998 that's what 18 years later I haven't got there <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I'd like to though. I'd like to. I think, and I think you know, arguably, I might go back and just read that that final bit, uh, and maybe pull it into pull it into some scenarios and so on. Because the scenarios that I've seen, of which there are quite a few for unknown armies, they tend to be down the other end, don't they? Down towards the street level and the adept level. I yeah. think. 
Yeah, definitely. That's, that's probably something we should mention. Is there is a book uh, or are a big bunch of adventures for unknown armies, and a lot of them are great. I mean, there's there is a book called One Shots. I think it's specifically called that, mm-hmm. which is One Shots, as you'd imagine. There's a great uh, scenario there about a prison break. So it's yeah. it's held entirely within someone's cottage, and there's an old man and his wife, uh, and then some prisoners uh, and a couple of policemen, I think. And it's just I, I can't really tell you much about it without spoiling it, so I won't. But it's another great example. It's got a good sort of that Quentin Tarantino esque setup in terms of the characters there, and some of them have got hidden motivations or whatever else. And then it's got a decent chunk of part of the occult underground in there as well in a very specific way and a, a clever use for it compared to how you might think but there's all kinds of different adventures in there that all do things in different ways and much the same as the one ring almost in that when i read that i didn't really know what to do with my hobbit and then i read their adventures and they had five or six and they all had a different flavor of what you might want to do which gave me a good steer and i think Unanamis has got that kind of thing as well there's a wealth of different adventures and they've all got a different flavor to them how they might run and what they're about and what level they're at uh, and mm. they're all great guides for giving you a different idea about how you might want to play your game there's um the the source books as well this was this was published in the in, in the days when games got source books uh, and and uh, there's, there's i don't know a dozen and some of them are quite hefty uh, and they all sort of like you know do a bit more with various bits of the universe and there's I mean, one's called lawyers guns and money which is worth the entrance price just for that alone and one book of adventures i think it's just called is it called weep yes <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, i've not read them all but the ones i've got this i would never normally recommend this this normally drives me mad but this is an rpg that you can buy and read and never play and still feel like you got your money's worth it's a really good read um, because you can just you know, it makes your imagination take flight it's a little bit intimidating because I'm not as good a gamer as Greg Stoltzy or a good a writer as John Tynes and I just don't have the mad ideas and, and Kenneth Height is not my GM so I, I always think I'm never going to get as good a game as the pages suggest I will um, but yeah read away and then if you want to there's loads and loads of stuff on the web about Unknown Armies it's got a really big following I think it's fair to say that Greg Stoltzy I think is bringing out a third edition I think he's working on that now and it might even be due this year now we're into 2016 and that will be that will absolutely be good and I can tell you that in advance that's not just me being a fanboy but he's never written a duff page of text in his life and and it is I think arguably the game would need an update if you were playing it in 2016 because the millennial stuff is is a bit pre-internet and I think that's changed everything yeah and and it must change the background quite a lot because people will start Googling stuff and I don't think that works in 1998 so much, does it? No, well, I think it's right when you were talking about the um, the goddess and you'll find a videotape. I think actually in the book it is a, like a VHS cassette, which is, it not, is yeah. it's not something that you would have these days. So Yeah, that'd be yeah. on iTunes, wouldn't it now? It feels a little bit like traveling where you can't text anyone and have Wi-Fi. It's one of those kind of things, just a little bit dated, mm. I think. But there'd be nothing to stop you sort of pl- playing it, period, if you want. Because mm-hmm. to me, Delta Green, for example, which has just got a new edition out now-ish, I think, I'm waiting for my Kickstarter to arrive. Um, that I always think of as kind of 90s X-Files. So if I played Delta Green in my head, we're still playing in 1993 or something like that, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the new edition will definitely be updated, but I don't think that should uh, dissuade you from having a look at the current edition, to be honest, because there's a lot mm-hmm. of good stuff in there. And I suppose yeah. 
There's one of the other things we mentioned. You've mentioned um, source books. Is there's different factions as well with stuff going on, which you may interact with, join, become antagonists of, or whatever else. So, for example, there's one organization called the Sleepers who are working really hard to keep magic and other bad stuff and in inverted commas from from the world in general. They don't want demons poking their nose into this world or all that kind of stuff. So they're really against any displays of magic, which sounds a fairly altruistic goal, unless your characters are all the adepts who have all got magic powers and keep displaying them. In which mm-hmm. case, as an organisation, who's very invested in making sure you don't do anything like that ever again. But if you're playing street level and you're not an adept, then you know you may become allies of this group because there could be something else happening. You know. Lots of different ways you could use this stuff. Oh, really, really good source books. I think it's it, it does hide back to the days when, compared to White Wolf, you see a lot. I don't want to diss them too much, but a lot of their source books were just fluff. You read them, and it was just words for the sake of it, and you wouldn't get a massive amount of game ideas out of them necessarily. Whereas I think the difference is UA, generally speaking, everything I read, I had ideas. You know, the ideas jump off the page. And I think that's the value of those books. Yeah, it, it totally is, and. Uh... There's a source book about the employees of McDonald's, which is a really big deal in the United Army, in the the Unknown Army's universe. A really big deal. No spoilers from me on this one, but if you can make the employees of a burger chain a major part of a global occult conspiracy, that you would happily start phoning up your friends and saying, Right, you've got to come over and play this game. I've got a new campaign idea. That's just incredible in itself. And, And that's one of the more throwaway factions, for goodness sake. So. I mean, we've been pretty frothy about UA, mate, all the way through this, and 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 I haven't played it for donkey's years. But pulling it out again in advance of wanting to talk about a classic game from from our youth has absolutely got me jonesing for more of it. I really want to play it, um, and I think it would work perfectly well over Google Plus these days with maybe smaller groups and and with the, some of the lessons of the more modern games on pulling your groups together and the story stuff. I think that United United Armies, that unknown armies vibe (laughs) would work really, really well now that I'm a bit older and wiser in the way of gaming. Uh, I think I might, the the game might have more legs than it had back then when it was just, it was just too, it was too cool for school. (laughs) I I wasn't good enough a gamer to get the most out of it. I'd like to think I'm a bit better now. What do you think? Can you play it in the 21st century? Is it, is it worth picking up the second edition because it can't be a huge amount of money on the secondary market would you recommend it to people yeah definitely I mean I can't wait to get off this podcast and go back and read my book again <laughs> uh, yeah like I said there was this weird dichotomy that the, the combat section starts off with this uh, quite um, not heavy handed but quite emotional piece about having to stick your knife into another human being but then immediately goes into all the cool stuff you can do with crowbars and people's heads uh, and flip-flopping rolls and getting criticals and all kinds of stuff like that so it's a little bit odd but I think generally the, the system's still pretty good um, there's there's things that I have I can see there being problems with potentially for some people so for example stuff like skills are quite low um, mm, and then yeah. you'll, you'll have a governing stat that'll be higher than that so what tends to happen is and it's this three levels thing that seems to go all the way through it, uh, the game but they have sort of three levels of skill challenge to a degree that if you've got 15% in something, you're actually reasonably competent. That's like a, a normal good level. So if you've got 15% in driving, for example, you can drive a car. And if there's no press, time pressure or no one's trying to run you off the road or anything, there's no need for driving rolls. You just do it. 
but that that is good for the kind of old classic Cthulhu problem where someone can't pick a lock or fails the search roll and can't find the hidden clue and that kind of stuff. If you've got a 15% in relevant skill and you have time and no one's got a gun to your head, then you'll just succeed. So that skips over some of that stuff. But it does mean for the more significant things where there is a time pressure or there's some other um, risk or whatever it is about it or some danger that you've got quite a low value. But even then in those situations, you can kind of roll the stat, which might be 50, 60, something like that. So you've got a 50, 50 chance maybe. And then really risky stuff like a fight and someone's trying to kill you, then you've kind of got to roll into your skill. But that, that skill might only be 30%. So my worry with it is that although it's realistic that in a, a life or death struggle and there's one knife between you, you're rolling around in the dirt and your hands are slick with sweat that you wouldn't stab each other very often. From a game point of view and how modern games work, I could see it being frustrating for some players that they keep rolling dice and nothing actually comes out of it. So there's the, there is a danger sometimes with it that when it comes down to the scare quartz exciting bit, that there's lots of rolling dice and lots of whiffing. So just be aware of that, I'd say. But there's enough good stuff there as well that makes it interesting and it is a good system to play. But it's just, a you, as a GM, I think you've got to be careful that you don't ask for too many skill checks, as in the actual skill, because otherwise you're going to have a lot of dice hitting tables and not too much happening. Yeah, and I think if you bring baggage to the game, the baggage being most other RPGs you've ever played you're going to try and make a competent all-rounder as a character yeah. and and though you can't do it in unknown armies you haven't got enough points and even if you did have enough points a competent all-rounder is probably one of the dullest characters you can play so you, you do have to you do have to trust in in the game and and death is not necessarily the end in this game but you do have to throw yourself into it and and, and drive your PC like a stolen car um, because it benefits from that you're only going to have a handful of skills you get to call those skills what you want so yeah you could take martial arts if you want although you know I'd I'd, I'd, I'd want to have a word with you if you did because you, you know, this isn't Feng Shui or, or those other games this is something where you want to make it way more interesting and evocative and that's why I talk about that's what I mean when I talk about the sort of the modern mindset there's plenty of games I think have taken UA's lessons over the last 20 years and I think people would be more receptive to it as well that idea of you've got a body stat um, and it will have a number next to it but you need to put something in brackets afterwards as a quick descriptor you know just just saying I've got body 44 isn't enough you know you need to put like a fit as a butcher's dog or or whip lean or whatever it is and just you need to pick something and it's full of stuff like that the the, the only downside I share with you on this one guys is it does have that that kind of that tone in the game of only roll the dice when it's really 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 necessary and i just whenever games say that it's almost like it feels like they're afraid to use their own rules and i think that's a shame and i think the solution to that is for the gm to make sure that characters are in situations all the time where it's really 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 significant because if it isn't they've got to turn up their volume and then Apocalypse World GM will will know that, and and modern GMs again, well, they'll have a much better idea, wouldn't they? Yeah, I think you're right. I think one of the the good things actually just reminded me about um, talking about the body stat and stuff like that is that you don't keep track of your own hit points, or your own body score as a player. The GM oh, keeps track of it, yeah. which is which is cool because, as you say, in other games like maybe D and D or something. You've got, say, 50 hit points and you lose 37 of them. Well, you've still got 13 left, so you're carrying on as before. There's no problem. 
Whereas in unknown armies, the GM describes to you what's happened. So if you've got a 50 body score and you've taken, you know, you're down to 13, he'll be talking about your, the whistling of your, the hole in your lungs every time you take a breath and air shoots out from your chest and the blood's oozing down your front of your shirt, filling it scarlet and all that kind of stuff. And the more heavy handed the GM is with his descriptions, the less likely players are to turn to violence as an option necessarily or mm. be more likely to back out of that fight and not fight to the death and take it more seriously. So but I think that's a really cool thing that, you don't worry about the points as much as a player. You just get told, as you do with anything else when you go into a room and you ask the GM to describe the scene or that kind of stuff. It's like, what happened when that guy shot me? And you can get a really horrific result and think, okay, getting shot's really bad. I don't want anything to do with this anymore. I'm out of here. And I think that's a nice little mechanic in and of itself. Yeah, and it is when you compare and contrast it with the madness meters where you have a pretty good idea of just how close to the edge you are from a mental perspective all yeah. the time because that goes on your sheet and I think they've done that on purpose so you, you never quite know if you're going to keel over physically but you definitely get a sense when you're coming undone because it's your yeah. own brain and it, when it starts lying to you that's when you know it's all gone wrong <laughs> yeah, okay so there that. we go mate that's, that's that's hopefully that's got people inspired I don't know if it answers the urban fantasy question that we started asking because I think I think UA the deeper you get into UA the more specifically UA it becomes and I think that's a really good thing because it is good um, but it's not it's not I, I don't think it is an urban fantasy game to be honest I think it bleeds well into the horrific aspects of it and there's much more about the occult and about obsession and so on rather than maybe exploration or whatever else it is you're trying to get out of urban fantasy but it's a really good start and an absolute cracker of a game that should be played more often than it is so I'm going to play it yeah word up I'm thinking about running at a convention soon or an online game or something but mm. yeah it, it can go on the stack with another 12 bucks that I'm definitely going to run a game of any time in it but yeah, it'd be interesting to, to hear from ideal listeners, wouldn't it? If someone else has got a good yeah. idea, I know there's like the Dresden Files game and the stuff like the Laundry and all those kind of franchises. But if you out there in listener land have got a good idea of an urban fantasy game, or maybe you think that one of the games we've mentioned is a better example than Unknown Armies, or maybe a worse example, I don't know. We'd love to hear from you though. So give us your thoughts on urban fantasy. Are we talking nonsense or have we got it right? Is there something good out there we could play and try and give it a proper go and what would you recommend to other people so i think for now that's enough from me uh, final words to you baz yeah thanks for that guys that's really interesting you're more of an expert in in unknown armies than i am but uh, but a great game really good i think we'll kind of revisit this subject again in the future if, if our patreons want us to they have the, the whip hand in all of this kind of stuff so give us a couple of bucks every month just look for us on smart party slash patreon.com and chuck in a couple of dollars and and if you want us to come to you know a classic uh we'll dig it out because it will be on one of our shelves if not both of our shelves and we'll have a look at it and we'll now say that we're going to run campaigns of that because that's how we roll so yeah <laughs> that's me for this week thanks guys thanks guys bye-bye